Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. For those of us, I feel a bit diffident as somebody who works primarily um, on the art of China's past um, rather than China's present, but I hope that these thoughts can at least help us to think about uh, the material in the Ai Weiwei exhibition in one of the many possible broader contexts in which we might, we might want to situate it. So what is, what do I mean by the stuff of, of Chinese art? Do I mean a distinctive set of materials which are associated only with China? And, and would those, what would those materials be? Would they, for example, be ink? Um, very much situated today by one strand of contemporary Chinese art as the Chinese material par excellence and something which gives us some sort of access to a, to a particular Chineseness. Perhaps outside China, we might not surprisingly think of porcelain as a specifically um, Chinese material, or we might think of jade, um, or, or we might think of bronze. All of these materials have been used in China. None of them is, is unique to China, although some of them were developed there. Porcelain, for example, was developed there. But what does it mean um, to take these materials and try and think about the work of Ai Weiwei in, in relation to that? Now, is it, is it justifiable to stand up here and talk about Ai Weiwei in relation to the art of the past, or particularly of the deep past, um, at all? Um, he himself has said, and I'm quoting, I'm contemporary by definition, but I definitely speak art historical languages too. So there's a certain amount of justification coming from the artist himself for, for what I'm doing today, but as we'll see, you know, the, what the artist says about himself is maybe not the be-all um, and end-all. There's a slightly more kind of problematic way of looking at this in that I think that um, Chinese art has often been talked about, particularly outside China, as, as somehow an art, historical art, an art that is particularly invested in, obsessed with reworking um, its own past. So if we look at a jade and a porcelain object, which are separated by thousands of years, but which are clearly the same shape, um, and clearly the people in 1000 AD who made this porcelain object were very deliberately reworking this uh, Neolithic jade object in a different material. I mean, there's actually, there's actually a technical word for this. It's called skewmorphism. Skewmorphism is when you make one thing in the material normally associated with another material. And that's what we're seeing a lot of um, in Ai Weiwei's work. He's, he's famous for making things out of materials that they're not usually made out of. So things that are normally made out of rubber are made out of jade, or things that are normally made out of metal are made out of marble. So that there's, a, there's a sort of technical term for that. Um, and, you know, making things out of other things is very much sort of um, in the, in the catalog. It's something that Ai Weiwei um, himself talks about. Um, so this would be a classic example of skewmorphism, the making of a baby's uh, pushchair out of marble, obviously, uh, in doing so, completely removing any kind of functionality um, that the thing might um, originally had. And we might note in passing that Ai Weiwei owns a chunk of a marble quarry, um, but then so did Michelangelo. So are, are we, you know, is this, is this relationship to the, to the art of the past a, a realistic thing to do? Um, 
If we want to, and you know, people like me are paid to come up with ingenious connections between things, um, you know, if we wanted to, we could say, well, Ai Weiwei is an artist whose artwork, often one artwork is made up of lots of little things. So the sunflower seeds that, that we saw at the Tate a couple of years ago, um, enormous quantities of single objects, but it's, it's one artwork. And there are a large number um, of his works that, that partake of what you might call this art of assemblage. So this uh, 2013 work called Baby Formula, or the map of China, which we see in his work again and again, is, is made out of tins of baby milk, precisely at the moment that there was a big scandal in China about the safety of, of, um, of baby formula. And a work like Bang from 2013, uh, you know, again, this is something that is made up of, we would recognize that there are lots of units, that there are many, many stools here, but the, it, it's, it's the sheer quantity of them that, that make it uh, something, uh, that make the work of art. Now, this is something that we might see in the work of other um, contemporary Chinese artists if we wanted to, to make that connection. And I'm showing you here um, a work called um, Chinese Bible, by an art, uh, this is uh, an installation in Australia, a work by an artist called Yang Zhu Chao, who's of a slightly gen younger generation, six years younger than Ai Weiwei, but they've been friends and, and known one another for a long time. And what Yang Zhu Chao did here is assemble 3,000 notebooks and diaries, which he bought from flea markets and uh, antique stalls and so on. These particular little red notebooks um, that were used in the Cultural Revolution period as diaries. And they, the contents are very various. Some of them are kind of people's political study, but they also include shopping lists and, and very sort of everyday, quotidian, uh, personal things like that. So here's another work of art which is made up of lots of little, um, lots of little things. And if we wanted to come back to this, I, I could say, I could stand here and say, well, um, you know, one of the things about um, traditional Chinese art, and I'm kind of deliberately doing the scare quotes there, is that you have the, the kind of basic unit is the brush stroke. Um, there's a Chinese technical term for this, which goes back a very long way, tsun. A tsun is an individual kind of brush stroke, and there are many different kinds of tsun, and there's a highly developed technical vocabulary for talking about them. Um, and a work like this, um, painted uh, at the very end of the 15th century, connoisseurship would say, well, you know, this is a work which is made up of of lots of these tsun, and so the kind of work that we're seeing here, you know, if we take each stool as being equivalent to a brush stroke, um, there's a continuity between this traditional Chinese art and, and what Ai Weiwei does today. Now, I could say that, uh, but there's a problem um, in saying that, uh, and there's a problem which I'd wish to um, underline for you by showing you two pictures. So this is a thing that I would typically do with students at the beginning of a course on 20th century Chinese art. I'd show them this picture painted in 1921, and I'd show them this picture painted in 1921, and I would say, which of these pictures is more Chinese, and which of these pictures is more modern? Now, in a sense, this is obviously a trick question. You know, they were, they were both painted by Chinese artists in China, in 1921, neither of the artists, incidentally, had ever left China at this point. So they were artists who had received their entire 
kind of artistic um, training um, within China. Uh, so the problem with this, or what makes it a, a, a trick question, um, is that um, it sort of puts Ai Weiwei in the great tradition of Chinese artists. I mean, one way he does relate to the artists of the past, and particularly to the artists of this early 20th century period, is that he's one of the Chinese artists who's being told by Western critics that their art isn't Chinese enough. Um, a particular uh, a review of the exhibition, or rather it was a preview of the exhibition, which appeared um, in, in the British press, said, well, you know, Ai Weiwei is the perfect um, artist for kind of lazy Western curators, and the reason that he's popular is entirely because his work is plugged into a tradition, uh, and a tradition descending back to Duchamp in the early 20th century, a tradition that's familiar. And because he's familiar, he's therefore popular. There's a lazy a piece of history there um, because um, you know, of these two pictures painted uh, in the same year uh, of 1921, what kind of reception did they get at the time? Or really, what kind of reception have they had uh, since then in terms of our understanding of what we might want to call modern Chinese art? The problem with this picture is that it looks pretty Chinese, but it gets defined as not modern. I mean, despite the artist, the artist who painted this, a man called Chun Hung Ke, was very kind of au courant with um, global contemporary art trends, and he writes this passage in which he says, well, once upon a time, and we might look at what's on the walls here, once upon a time, European painting was about capturing what things looked like, but now, he's writing in 19, the early 1920s, that's not what Europeans do. Look at cubism, look at futurism. You know, that, that's, what they're, that's what they're doing now. Art is about expressing what the artist really feels. And we've been doing that for thousands of years. So this is modern Chinese art, but he can't make that stick. That has not stuck over the centuries. Uh, over the decades, well, it's a century now, um, but over the decades since this. So this gets called, and this would have probably shocked the man who painted it, this gets called traditional Chinese art. The problem with this is entirely opposite. Um, it looks modern in terms of 1921, but it doesn't look Chinese, and it gets uh, categorized as derivative. It's all very well, but it's just a bit like Matisse. It's a pale imitation of Matisse in the way that some critics have said, well, Ai Weiwei is a pale imitation of Duchamp. So this can be modern, and after all, you know, in 1921, this is, this is much more modern than the art which was approved by this institution, the Royal Academy in 1921, which was very much digging its heels in against anything that, that smacked of, uh, of post-impressionism. Um, uh, so, you know, it's pretty modern for 1921, but it isn't Chinese. So that's the problem of that, that, that I have as I stand here. If I, if I tell a story about Ai Weiwei's connections with brushstroke technologies of the Ming period, I'm making him very Chinese, but I'm subverting his claims to be contemporary. And if I... Uh, address his uh, connections to Duchamp, 
then I'm destroying, I'm undermining his Chineseness. Now, I'm not the first person to spot this problem, and in fact, I would suggest that contemporary Chinese artists are very much more aware of this problem than I am, or than any one of us is. This is the, this is the framing in which all of their work is situated. It has particular inflections in particular cases, so it works out one way in the case of Ai Weiwei, but it's essentially the problem that all um, contemporary Chinese artists uh, face. So if we look at this, if we look at this um, uh, work, the art book, which is in the, the, in the uh, exhibition, now of course, um, you know, one of the, the sort of piquant things about it is that in the Chinese, in the English edition published by Fiden, um, Ai Weiwei appears, you know, it appears here immediately before Albers, but in the Chinese edition, which Fiden must have um, licensed and frankly shame on them, um, the uh, Ai Weiwei gets left out and Agostino di Duccio becomes the artist who comes immediately before Albers. But I think there's a more um, profound point for me, there's a more profound point here than simply something about, you know, political censorship or leaving. It, it's like, how, how, if there's the art book, one book of kind of Chinese art, how is, how is China to be fitted into this? Because although this book contains contemporary Chinese art, it doesn't contain the art of the past. It doesn't contain Shenzhou or Wen Zhengming or Shi Tao or Dong Chang or any of the other kind of major canonical names that I could reel off purely to everybody's mystification of what would be the point. You know, so, so the question of kind of, are we dealing, you know, are we dealing with one art? This is not a comfortable or an, or an easy question, and I don't think uh, there's an answer to it. But he is in that great tradition, therefore, um, which goes back to the early 20th century, of Chinese artists who have been told by Western critics that their art isn't Chinese enough. There's another way, I suppose, in which we might want to, again, you know, here's another tale that I could spin if I wanted to about, you know, politics and Chinese art. I mean, it's often thought that, you know, Chinese painting of the pre-modern period has no relationship to politics, that it's associated with kind of sensibilities and things, but actually there's a considerable history of early 15th century artists getting into trouble for painting figures in red robes when that kind of person wasn't supposed to have a red robe. And certainly in the 20th century, um, here's a work from the middle of the 20th century called Images of Today by Ding Tsung, um, and it includes, uh, whoops, um, if you can see towards the kind of left-hand edge, there's a figure of an artist holding up a painting of a rather sort of mangy wolf. Um, and he's, he's bedizened with prizes, which he's awarded by the state, but he's blindfolded. He can't see the corruption and the chaos and the misery of, uh, of wartime China. So that kind of um, uh, you know, political engagement, this is not something that no Chinese artist has, has ever done before. Similarly, the, the reworking of things. So here's a, this is what's called a, a New Year picture, a Nian Hua, um, a kind of popular poster distributed at the Chinese New Year. And this is one which Ai Weiwei himself distributed on the internet. And a couple of years back, I'm afraid I can't remember which one, obviously we've got kind of the self-portrait in the form of gods, but we've also got the kind of imagery of... Um, 
uh, you know, a sort of personal and private imagery. So we've got the crabs that we see in the exhibition, the the Hersier, the river crabs that are a pun on this word harmony, which is the state's big highest virtue. And we've got down in the bottom left-hand corner, you can see the alpaca, the, the grass mud horse, um, which sounds like a very, very rude Chinese word indeed. Now these um, uh, posters, so here's one, from the, here's one from the early 20th century. This is what these kind of posters um, looked like uh, for, uh, for, uh, for centuries. But long before Ai Weiwei, or at least kind of in the decades before Ai Weiwei was born, um, the kind of taking and appropriating of this form for political aims was widespread. So what you've got here are two uh, posters produced in the communist base area of Yan'an, um, showing instead of the kind of traditional gods that are going to protect us from evil influences, the kind of uh, communist militias and communist troops who are going to kind of preserve us from the Japanese. So this sort of reworking, this taking, appropriating, melding and reworking, um, which we see in Ai Weiwei's work quite clearly, um, is, is again something that we could, if we wanted to, um, associate with, with the past. There are very particular histories um, that I think we need to grasp in order to understand this work, and obviously those are the histories of 20th century China, but also the kind of personal history of Ai Weiwei, but also the very specific history of the, um, the generation immediately before Ai Weiwei. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, because I don't think it's often understood enough, is the degree of cosmopolitanism in socialist China in the decade and a half between the communists coming to power in 1949 and the outbreak of the Cultural Revolution um, in 1966. The coming to power of the communists in 1949 severed China's connections with, certainly with the United States, and to a lesser degree with Western Europe, but by no stretch of the imagination with the rest of the world. So the picture that I'm showing you, um, the gentleman on the far left is the Chilean painter, Jose Venturelli, and standing next to him um, is Ai Ching, Ai Weiwei's father famous poet born in 1910, um, you know, who, who in the very early years of the People's Republic was a very kind of uh, um, highly esteemed figure. He has his arm around this very elderly man called Qi Bai Shi, uh, famous painter in the so-called national painting style, Guo Hua uh, painting style, and then the other, another poet, Emi Xiao. Um, Qi Bai Shi is something of an icon of this cosmopolitanism. The man circled in the photograph in the upper left, Konstantin Maximov, a Soviet painter who spent time in the, in the 1950s um, in China and ran oil painting classes. Um, and even Western Europe is not, the, the art worlds of Western Europe and China are not completely separated because here is Qi Bai Shi with our own, our very own um, Stanley Spencer RA. Um, uh, who visited China in 1954. So, um, although um, Ai Weiwei uh, spent uh, his very early life, I mean, he, it was, he was a baby when his father was purged 
um, exiled first to the remote northeast and then to the deserts of Xinjiang. So he himself had never experienced this kind of socialist cosmopolitanism, this third world cosmopolitanism where there are poets from Cairo and uh, Indian painters and so on passing through China in the early 1950s. But that was the milieu very much in which uh, you know, his father's um, political culture was formed. Um, Ai Weiwei starts out as a picture maker. He starts out as a maker of pictures. Um, here's one of his works from 1979. Um, and it was presumably work not so different from this that he was showing as a member um, of the STARS group, the first kind of unofficial group. Um, but remember that he, he, just as Michel Foucault famously missed May 68, he wasn't in Paris in 1968, he was teaching in Tunisia. So Ai Weiwei missed 1989, he missed Tiananmen Square. Um, the association of art making with political activism, which goes back to the STARS movement, um, is something that he took with him um, when he left China and headed for, for the United States. Now, he himself has said, actually, before 2000, I didn't make much artwork. There was no need to call myself an artist. But I find this sort of very hard to believe. Um, he was a maker of pictures, a maker of representations out of things. And this portrait of Duchamp is actually nothing like a Duchamp. Ai Weiwei has said, I think Duchamp is the most, if not the only, influential figure in my so-called art practice. We all benefit from what he's done. But this is an object transformed. It's beaten out of shape and into shape at the same time. It ceases to be a coat hanger at the very precise moment that it becomes um, a portrait. So there's all kinds of sort of experimenting uh, going on um, in, in the work that he does kind of in the United States, work like this is very, very different, different non-figurative work. But he misses 1989. He isn't there, this kind of iconic moment, whoops, this iconic moment um, of Chinese culture which circulates on the internet in memes like this, you know, this is so clearly a sort of joke um, redoing of the man standing in, the famous photograph of the man standing in front of the tank in Tiananmen. Instead, he's in New York. Here he is scowling um, and channeling Andy Warhol at the same time. And you have to admit that an ability to scowl and channel Andy Warhol at the same time is, is sort of pretty impressive. Um, he's there at a point of when New York bulks very large um, in Chinese culture. He's in China, for example, when Glenn Tsao's novel uh, Beijing Renzai New Year, a, a Beijing man, a Beijinger in New York, um, is the Suk Fu, a mad success in the Chinese. And then it's made into a TV series in 1993. It's like China came to a stop when this was on the telly. The streets were deserted. Everybody watched um, this fantastic kind of soap opera. But he was actually there. So in a sense, when he goes back to China, the cultural capital of New York is something that he, he trails with him. And that's both the cultural capital of his exposure to um, high Western modernism, here he is with Duchamp, um, and the sort of dregs of society sense. Here he is kind of, I mean, 
you know, you talking to me, I think, is, the, is what we're getting in this photograph. Here he is working as a, as a, a, a portrait artist um, in Times Square um, in the kind of, in the 1980s. Now, um, one of the things that um, it seems to me that, that, that Ai Weiwei is very contemporary about is, is the scale of his work. His work is often very, very big. This is a work called Forever Bicycles, um, shown in Taipei in 2011. It was a sort of immersive bicycle um, experience. But you might say that, again, it's the socialist state that makes the possibilities for much bigger art. So this painting from the 1950s is, is massively bigger than any Guohua landscape painting has ever been before. It's nine meters across um, and five meters high, and it, and it, it sits in the, in the Great Hall of the People. And this interest in scale and proportion and the sizes of things, making things big, making things little, that seems to me to be a theme that runs um, through the work. Um, I think that's the point of, of this series of, of images, the, the studies in perspective series. Here with the White House and here, more or less randomly, because he's, a, he's an equal opportunity insulter. So this is him, this is the, this is the parliament building in Helsinki. You know, what has Ai Weiwei got against the parliament, but what against the Finnish parliament? Um, you know, we don't know, but it's, it's you know, it, it actually is a study, it is what it says it is at the same time as, it, as it's the joke. It is a study in perspective. So now let me get to the issue of, of materials. Um, it seems to me that the materials that he uses, there's a, there's a distinction here to be made between clean stuff and messy stuff. And this isn't about abjection, it seems to me. This is not about abjection. And that's what differentiates it from a lot of the Chinese avant-garde art that was developing tentatively in the decades while he was out of China. So this work, like, in, you know, very, very early on Gu Dexin's installation. Uh, Gu Dexin, at this point, worked in a, in, a, in a plastics factory and hence had access to this kind of extruded materials, which have these kind of visceral, unpleasant qualities. Um, even the painting, some of the painting of the period, has this very kind of messy and abject quality. And a work like this, Huang Yongping's A History of Chinese Painting and A Short History of Modern Painting After Two Minutes in the Washing Machine, which is a work which did exactly what it said on the tin. He took two textbooks that were in use in Chinese art schools at the time, one of them A History of Chinese Painting, one of them Herbert Reed's History of, of Modern Western Art, and here he is actually putting them um, in his heavy kind of spin cycle. Um, there's a whole kind of strand of abjection of the body art, which is very pervasive, again, during the period when Ai Weiwei was outside China and just after he'd returned. So he was actually the photographer of this performance piece, 65 kilos by Zhang Huan, in which he hangs himself from the roof with one of his veins cut open and blood dripping onto a hot plate um, underneath so that there's kind of sizzling and, and a horrible smell um, at the same time. Or work like this, Sun Yen and Peng Yu's Civilization Pillar, which is an entire pillar made out of liposuction fat. And it's made out of liposuction fat from a very particular procedure 
very common in China nowadays, which is the operation on the folds of the eye designed to make your eyes look rounder and hence more Western. And they gathered this fat, this human fat. Uh, I, shouldn't, I hope everybody's had their lunch. Uh, uh, there are photographs of them doing this, but don't worry, I've saved them. I'll save them for students. Um, uh, you know, but this is, this is very visceral, very messy, very kind of nasty, nasty material. You know, and it, and it reaches its climax in the, in the exhibition um, uh, in 2000 with this kind of dual title and this very kind of different dual title so that the Chinese, an uncooperative approach, um, says one kind of thing and the English title says one very kind of different, uh, different sort of thing. And this is the exhibition in which body parts and fetuses and all kinds of unbelievably unpleasant kind of abject treatment of the, of the human body uh, was engaged in. Now, a lot of his work is clearly about destruction. Um, it's about the destruction, you know, we tend to drag that back to the past, but I think um, uh, Chinese critics who, who kind of, both Chinese critics who like Ai Weiwei's work and Chinese critics who don't like Ai Weiwei's work tend not to always make the historical associations that um, uh, Western critics make and that I'm sort of both making and trying to kind of problematize for you here. So, you know, smashing, breaking, we associate that with the destruction of the Cultural Revolution, with the visual art of the Cultural Revolution, but it's at least as much to do with a massive kind of economic development of China today. So I'm just showing you a picture from the Chinese media this year of the Ren Mansion in Zhengzhou. This is now a much celebrated case of a historic mansion which um, basically is in the wrong place and property developers would like it swept away um, and the Ren family are kind of holding out and, uh, and attempting um, to preserve it. So that's an association not with the past but very much kind of with the present day of China and it's a, it's a tearing down in order to build something um, and uh, that, that makes it, you know, in a way much more difficult. I mean, he's been a great builder, hasn't he? You know, builder of studios. Um, and he's arrived at this sort of um, position where he is the, you know, the boss man, the big figure. Um, in 2007, Li Yang, a contemporary artist, made this uh, life-size diorama of figures, rent collection courtyard, which was itself a parody of a 1999 artwork, which was itself a parody of a Cultural Revolution period artwork showing in clay figures the sort of evil landlord. So here we have Joseph Boyce and Mao gaze um, into, the, into the future together. Um, here we have the corpse of Harold Seyman, is, is be, the curator, Harold Seyman, curator of the Venice Biennale. Um, being borne away, while Ai Weiwei is, you know, the boss, here's Uli Sig, the great Swiss collector of contemporary Chinese art, pushing the wheelbarrow, and Ai Weiwei is cast in the figure um, of the evil landlord. You know, there's clearly, a, you know, the mickey is being taken. He has to be able to, to take it um, as, well as, as well as dish it out. But he's not an artist whose work has sold for huge prices on the international art market. I mean, these figures are a few years out of date, but these are the top-selling contemporary artists by value 
in the year 2011 and 2012. And you'll see several Chinese names um, on this list, people who've sold their work for colossal um, prices. Um, but these are figures very much in the, uh, in the tradition of painting rather in the tradition of the work that he's doing. So clean stuff versus kind of messy stuff. Um, you know, woodworking. So let's just think about some of the things that he's used. I think there's an issue here about, about um, making and labor, and in particular gendered labor. So here are, here are the male kinds of carpenters who work on woodwork, and here are the female industrial workers who at Jingdezhen created the 100 million or however many it was um, sunflower seeds. So there's a kind of gendered labor thing going on here that I think we need to forget. Uh, need to remember, um, that we need to not forget. Um, you know, this interest in having, you know, craftsmen do things for you, there's a lot of that in contemporary Chinese art. This is the 1999 version um, of Venice's rent collection courtyard. And a lot of contemporary artists in China and outside China have homed in on the village of Dafen. The village of Dafen is part of the city of Shenzhen in South China, where that, and is the center of the global oil painting industry. You know, if you want a hand-painted copy of a Renoir for a hotel hallway, this is, this is where it goes. So the artist Liu Ding got hundreds of these same pictures. And this is, this is Michael Richter's uh, series, Real Fake Art, in which he went round a Dauphin and got artists to pose with the European modernist works that they were creating. There's a further twist to this in that we've subsequently learned that the people posing with these works hadn't painted them, most of them at all. And in fact, they were all painted by one guy who had then kind of put, it, put the work out to other people, but that a man called Yin Xiu Zhu painted all of them, all of them himself. So um, the... Uh, Coming back to, to the specifics of certain materials, let's just sort of think about wood um, for a little bit. I used to be a curator um, of furniture uh, in the Victoria and Albert Museum. This kind of Chinese furniture of this kind um, was the sort of stuff I, I worked on, and indeed one of my first books was a book about um, Chinese furniture um, of this kind. And what struck me looking at them again as I walked around the exhibition just before giving this lecture was they looked to me like they'd always been like that. They didn't look to me like objects that had been manipulated. Now, of course, they have been manipulated, you know, cut in half and, and readjusted and so on. Um, but they, um, they have a particular... Um, I mean, the connoisseurship of these things is very much, when I used to kind of have to tell whether a thing was old or new by looking at it, the kind of close attention to the joints and so on, uh, that, you know, are the signs of reworking, are the signs of remodeling. That, that was what you had to kind of pay a great deal of attention to. Um, reworking could be, um, you know, used in all kinds of ways. I mean, this is a ridiculous example, a deliberately ridiculous example. Um, but very recently in Xinjiang, the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, a part of China where there's continuous efforts to make people feel part of the larger motherland, um, these are the winners of a competition to nibble a map of China out of, out of uh, flatbread, out of the big naan bread. 
um, that, is, uh, that is used uh, kind of in that part of the world. So the materials that are being kind of used here um, are materials that are uh, available in very large quantities, um, you know, that exist, um, that exist uh, in museums. But again, I think there's a particular history here that, that we might be missing, which is that almost all the materials, I'm going to talk about three, I'm going to talk about um, uh, wood, I'm going to talk about porcelain, and I'm going to talk about steel, I'm going to talk about ceramics and steel. But none of these are traditionally esteemed materials. There's no connoisseurship or collecting of furniture in China um, prior to the 20th century. Indeed, in 1956, a famous furniture historian, or the first great furniture historian, Wang Shixiang, kind of had to say, look, you know, foreigners are buying this stuff up and taking it out of the country because there's no law against doing that because nobody cares about it. It doesn't actually come under the, um, the, the protection of, of a national heritage laws. It's only in the 1980s, the decade that Ai Weiwei spent in New York and that I spent as a Victoria and Albert Museum curator, that Chinese furniture starts to become a, a category within the art market and starts to, to gain um, significant um, prices. So he's working in wood. Here's a much, much bigger piece. Um, his, work, his reworking of, of uh, temple columns in this map of China, and here it is in its version uh, with the province of Taiwan as well. Here's bed, the, 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 map, the, the map of China unrolled, which we see in the exhibition, or these very beautiful, fantastically precisely crafted um, treasure box pieces, which again we see in the exhibition. Um, they are, uh, you know, this is, this is not a material that you know, has been always, I mean, it's always been esteemed, but it's never been art. It's always been stuff um, within Chinese culture. And I'd want to make the same point, I think, about the particular kinds of ceramic that Ai Weiwei has dropped or painted or dipped in, dipped in all kinds of other things. In that these, these are Chinese ceramics, and they're very, very old, but they're kinds of ceramics which historically, and by historically I mean prior to the 20th century, were not collected at all, were not valued, were not written about. Now, there are other kinds of ceramics that were valued and were written about, but these things are essentially, within China's own understanding of the past, were valueless until the 20th century. And I think we have to think about that when we're looking at the things that he does with this. Now, this is not some kind of apologia, you know, oh, it doesn't matter because, you know, uh, you know they are genuinely kind of extremely old pieces. Um, but they're pieces that now exist in this kind of context, the context of a vast, unregulated um, antiques trade which has... Um, you know, which supports vast quantities of kind of destruction of the heritage um, and which is ultimately aimed at markets kind of outside China and the West as well. So, you know, we see this, this is the kind of thing that's, that's, that's going on here. Steel and porcelain, I think, ceramics are an interestingly sort of unreusable material. They're very different from wood. You can make a wooden thing into another thing, but you can't make a pot into something else. You can't melt it down, reuse the material. You can, you can paint it, you can drop it, but you can't turn a pot that looks like that into a pot that, that looks like that, or long and thin. You just, you just can't do um, that, kind of, that kind of thing. 
If we think about steel, um, and I found, you know, I was looking at, I was looking at uh, the work again, I was looking at straight again, here they are kind of assembling it, and I was looking at straight again in the exhibition and thinking, you know, the, the, the principal issue there is about weight and, and what's underneath it, obviously, the, the deaths caused by the earthquake. But I also thought about, um, you know, the particular role of steel in Chinese uh, party mythology, in the, in the world in which Ai Weiwei is growing up. You know, Nikolai Ostrovsky's novel, How the Steel Was Tempered, it's one of the great European novels to, to achieve huge popularity um, in China. It was made into various films. Um, and here we have posters from the, from the 50s. You know, steel is the kind of communist material um, par excellence and associated with the notion of the Iron Man. You know, the, 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 the party, you know, what the party creates is steel and what the, what the making of the steel creates is men of iron. This is, this is Iron Man Wang, one of the great kind of heroes of the Cultural Revolution period. And so when we think about an issue, uh, an image like this, this is a self-portrait Ai Weiwei made um, uh, in 1986 in New York with this kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, cross-dressing kind of thing. I mean, I think there's a homage to, here's, here's Man Ray's portrait of Rose C'est la Vie, which is um, Marcel Duchamp in his kind of cross-dressing alter ego. There, there's something like that going on here, but it brings us back to the, to the kind of issue of, of gender um, in, in Ai Weiwei's work, in particular the relation between sex and looking. He said, sex is always an area through which you can see different moments in history with a certain clarity. And here's his photograph um, of his wife, Lu Qing, uh, in Tiananmen Square, 1994. Interestingly, there's an interesting thing here. This is always spoken about as a photograph by Ai Weiwei rather than as a performance piece by Lu Qing. Her agency is kind of elided in that, whereas there are plenty of other um, performance pieces done in Tiananmen Square where it's the person performing who is the artist and the person recording it who's anonymous. So there's a, there's a real issue here about the kind of silencing of the agency of women and the voices of women in what is still a very, very macho um, contemporary um, Chinese, uh, contemporary Chinese uh, art world. Um, so this kind, of, this kind of flashing or, you know, peeping or now you see it, now you don't um, aspect um, in Ai Weiwei is, uh, you know, I think very important. This plays with the conventions or it understands the conventions of the rock music video. We start in a very kind of realist mode and at a certain point it all goes a bit wacky. You know, that, that, how, many, how many music videos kind of do that? Um, but I think, it does, I think it does something else as well. The realist mode at the beginning, which is what we've got reflected in the boxes, when we stand and we peep, we see these scenes, which is essentially what an audience outside China expects to see of the artist persecuted by the, by the totalitarian state, watched as he 
goes to the bathroom and watched as he, as he kind of eats and so on. So there's, there's this kind of realist uh, mode um, aspect of it. He himself has said of that work, I reduced it to half scale to make people that it's, to feel that it's more like a play than a reality. But it seems to me that, that, that then this does something kind of quite different um, in this uh, significant scene where you know, he's, he's shaved. We then see him kind of, as it were, at liberty as the playboy in the suit with the scantily dressed dancers who again are a sort of cliche um, of the rock video. You know, the, the enviable lifestyle of the boss man, which is something that plenty of people kind of hold against him, that this is somebody who's kind of parlayed his position into this sort of uh, international fame which, you know, which puts him up there um, with, the, with the glitterati. But why I think this video, I mean, and it's crude and noisy and it's not great music, but why I think it's actually a rather important work of art in understanding Ai Weiwei's kind of total situation or in understanding his understanding of his total situation is the, the, the ending where his son, that's his son, shaves his beard, shaves his head, and he himself is done up in this kind of garish, overperformed kind of drag in the, in the kind of corset and the, and the thing. Um, because to put not too fine a point on, the, on it, many, the way, the way that um, he's been presented in China by the state and the way that many kind of commentators in China have chosen to see him as in, as, is as in some ways the tart of the Western audience. You know, the whore of the of the people like us who go and see exhibitions of his work um, outside China. And in a way, he's telling us both that he knows that, but he's also, you know, he blows the, or this is YouTube, so it's a global audience, so he kind of blows us a kiss um, at the end um, to let us know that he's well aware that what we'd really like to see is purely the kind of, we like the bit at the beginning, because the bit at the beginning makes us feel good about ourselves, that we're not the horrible people who have kind of imprisoned him or are carrying out surveillance on him. Um, but he's also very well aware that, that he's trapped, almost in the way that people in the, in the early 20th century were trapped between, well, if it's modern, it can't be Chinese, and if it's Chinese, it can't be modern. He's in the situation where, uh, you know, he, he's either... The victim, you know, he's the victim of, of both sets of gazes. And I think that you know, the way he's chosen to do this um, for this exhibition, um, this again is about peeping, isn't it? We, don't, we, don't, we only see this if we peep, if we, if we stand on the step, or if we lower our bodies in order to look in, you know, and we get the kind of frisson. So that again, the action is in us. We're stooping and climbing for that scopophiliac, that sort of joy of, of seeing something kind of naughty and forbidden, um, which is associated with the peep box. And I therefore think that he's, you know, again, he's taken something like the peep box, but also in the video, he's taken something like the conventions of the music video, which he's treated like a found object, like, like the coat hanger, which he bent out of shape and into something else. And it seems to me that it's that um, ability con to continue to sort of
bend things out of shape, to understand the properties of those materials sufficiently be, to be able to bend them out of the shape that they're in into another shape that continues, for me at any rate, to make him an interesting artist, an artist worth thinking about and thinking with. Um, and I'd like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about him this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.